Johnny will be speaking from from first Mark um, from verses 14 through to 45. Let's let's read them together. It's titled this: Jesus begins his ministry. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sunset they brought to him all those who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And when he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Well, good morning, everyone. 
uh, let me add my welcome to Derek's. For those of you who haven't met me before, my name is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron, uh, and we're really delighted to have you with us this morning. If you are new um, or just visiting us this morning, uh, then please do make yourself known. Uh, we'd love to greet you uh, and to get to know you a bit before you leave uh, this morning. Uh, thank you very much to Derek for reading from Mark chapter 1. Uh, it would be helpful to me and to you, I think, if you could have that open in front of you uh, as we walk through it together over the next few minutes. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. So let me lead us in prayer. The psalmist writes, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Our God and Father, we pray that you would please be at work among us this morning by your Holy Spirit as we consider your word together. And we pray that as we do so, we would be a people who rejoice as those who found great riches. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin this morning with a question. What would it take to convince you to follow someone? What would it take to convince you to follow someone? Now, when I say follow, I should be clear. I'm not talking about following them on social media because, well, it doesn't take an awful lot to convince most of us to do that, I guess. Nor am I talking about following them down the street because that's not the kind of behavior that I'd be condoning. When I say follow someone, I mean to follow them in an all of life kind of way, a costly kind of way. What would you have to be sure of, for example, before you are willing to walk away from your job, perhaps, or financial security, in order to swear allegiance to someone, to live under their rule, what would it take to convince you to make that kind of step? Now, I'm guessing that for most of us, the answer is an awful lot. I'd really have to be absolutely certain about the person I'm following, that they're worth following, that I'm not being naive that I'm not being defrauded, that I'm not throwing my life away. That scenario might seem a bit contrived, a bit hypothetical, because no one, not even the most severe of bosses or, or most extreme of political leaders, would demand that kind of loyalty from you. But we're going to see this morning that it isn't hypothetical at all. And in fact, it's exactly the kind of question that Mark would have us reckon with in chapter 1 of his account of Jesus' life. Just look with me to verse 16, the beginning of this unit. Jesus is walking beside the sea in a place called Galilee when he sees some fishermen. They weren't freelancers, it seems. Verse 20, we find out that the fishing business they were running had employed some servants. They're effectively running small to medium-sized enterprises. And Jesus, as he passes them by, calls them to follow. Verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And what do we expect at that point? Well, verse 18, no thanks. Kind of a bit busy here in the middle of something just now. Or perhaps more likely, why? Why should we follow you? What makes you so special? But that isn't what happens, is it? Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. They drop what they're doing to follow Jesus. And when we read that, it might sound a bit rash. Maybe even a bit naive on their part to drop everything there and then to follow this Jesus. 
And it does prompt that question, doesn't it? Why? What would convince these guys to leave their work there and then to follow Jesus? Who can demand that kind of response? And Mark doesn't just intend that to be a question for a clutch of fishermen living in first century Palestine. Because right at the heart of the Christian faith is a call to follow Jesus Christ. To be willing, in fact, to give up everything to follow him. And I do wonder what it would take to convince you to do that. What or who could compel that kind of allegiance, that kind of obedience in your life? Well, it's Mark's intention, I think, in our passage this morning to persuade us, his readers, to be willing to do just that. And we're going to think about that under our first heading this morning. Next slide, please, Johan. Thank you. King Jesus has unrivaled authority. Now, I read recently about a famous American unit during the Second World War called E or Easy Company. They were a company in the Parachute Infantry Regiment. And shortly before the company entered the conflict, their commanding officer was stood down. And he was replaced by another man, a man called Richard Winters. And although the men in the company knew that Winters was officially their leader, well, one or two of the more senior members of the company weren't all that convinced of his leadership. Or at least they weren't convinced enough to confidently follow him into battle. Until D-Day. Because on D-Day, Winters led a small group of men in an assault on a German gun battery And he did so to astonishing effect. Such great effect, in fact, that he was subsequently awarded with the Distinguished Service Cross. But perhaps more to the point, from the men who saw him, saw him leading so well, he was awarded their unwavering allegiance for the rest of the war. See, it's one thing to know that someone holds a position of authority over you officially, so to speak. But it can be another to be persuaded not only to acknowledge their rank, but to follow the person. And that's something like the dynamic going on as we make our way through Mark chapter 1. If you were here last week, we thought about the first 15 verses of, of that chapter where Mark and a clutch of others declared the breaking news. Jesus is God's universal rescuing king. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the breaking news, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it's one thing to hear that announcement, to hear that Jesus is God's king, perhaps even to acknowledge the truth of that in a kind of distant or removed way, but it might be quite another to be personally moved by that. To be so persuaded, in fact, that when he calls you to follow him, oh, you're compelled, compelled to drop everything and go. And so as we read through the rest of chapter one, Mark isn't just telling us that Jesus is God's long promised king. No, he's showing us. He's proving it to us. Proving that Jesus has an unrivaled authority, an authority that makes him absolutely compelling and utterly worth following. Just notice that with me. After the four fishermen have committed to following Jesus, Mark tracks with them as they journey together and arrive at a place called Capernaum. 
And when they arrive, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Capernaum, verse 21, and he begins to teach. And it's teaching, Mark tells us, that is astonishing. But not for the reason we might expect. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he used remarkably persuasive arguments and was just very eloquent. No, that isn't what struck them, was it? Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, they aren't moved by the content or style of the teaching necessarily, though it undoubtedly was extraordinary. Now, what strikes them is the authority of the teacher. And that word, authority, is one that Mark wants us to clock. It's the idea that holds this section of Mark's account together. In fact, the word appears again in verse 27. And we'll see it next week too at the beginning of chapter 2. And the idea kind of hangs over this whole unit as a theme. And we see that actually as Jesus' authoritative teaching is interrupted. Verse 23, where Mark takes us from what appears to be well, what might be quite a family-friendly scene to something altogether darker. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, I just wonder how we might feel if that person walked into this room this morning. Someone you knew to be afflicted with an evil spirit. I'm guessing most of us would feel pretty uncomfortable. More likely, though, we'd feel fairly terrified to be in the presence of that kind of evil. And yet, I wonder if you noticed in Mark's account who the frightened one is. Verse 23. And he, that's the spirit, cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't it striking that in the synagogue, the evil spirit's the one who's frightened? Frightened of Jesus. And the reason he's frightened is that he recognizes who Jesus is and what that means for him. Have you come to destroy us, he says. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Or in other words, I know you're God's special one. And I know that means you have the power to destroy me if you should so choose. And as it transpires, the demon's assessment is right on the money. Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. With just a few words, five in the original language, Jesus commands the spirit to come out of the man, like a master calling a dog to heal. And I wonder what you make of that. Because I'm guessing that it might jar against some of us, how some of us would otherwise think of the world we live in. It might actually sound a bit silly to you, almost, almost laughable to think of the world in those kinds of terms. Because a common view in our culture is that the physical world, the material world, is all there is. There is no objective good and evil, much less spirits or beings who are good or evil. 
And so it is just more than possible that you're here this morning and you don't really have a category for any of this stuff at all. And yet the difficulty with that worldview is the world. Because our experience and our observation of the world we live in tells us that that just can't be right. There are things that happen that don't fit into that materialist explanation of the world we live in. I remember reading an account of the Rwandan genocide that happened in 1994, where over the course of 100 days, it's estimated that somewhere between five and 700,000 people were killed, were murdered, uh, mostly by their own neighbours. And the account I was reading was written by a secular historian. And you could sense in what he wrote that his framework for understanding the world was just creaking at the seams. What on earth could drive that kind of behavior? Where does that even come from? And that kind of darkness isn't just confined to mass events. An acquaintance of mine had reason to come into regular contact with some of the inmates of Broadmoor Prison a number of years ago. And of all of the people he'd met, some of whom had done dreadful, deplorable things, one man in particular stood out, a man called Ian Brady, whom some of you will know as one of the Moors murderers. And of all the people my acquaintance had to spend time with, well, he said that Brady had a tangible sense of evil about him. Now, the darkness or the unease we might feel about those kinds of events well, they don't fit very neatly into materialist worldview, do they? But you see, they do make absolute sense within the Bible's framework. The Bible explains our capacity for evil as human beings, both at a personal and at a corporate level, and also, also tells us of a personal actor of evil in the world called Satan. And that is why what Mark shows us is so extraordinary. That Jesus, whom he's already told us is God's long-promised king, shows himself to have absolute authority over evil, over Satan and his agents. And as we'll think about in weeks to come, we'll one day do away with that evil altogether. So, so far we've seen authority in his teaching, We've seen authority over evil, and yet there is a third arena over which Jesus has authority in Mark 1. We read about it in verses 29 to 34. Jesus has authority over sickness. In verse 29, Jesus and the four fishermen move from the synagogue to Simon and Andrew's house. And whilst things had perhaps been fairly dark in the synagogue, well, as they arrive at the house, they become really quite grim. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. Now, when we talk about a fever, we're often talking about something quite mild. Like the kind of bug that we might deal with by taking a couple of paracetamol, or if it's, if it's really bad, going on a course of antibiotics and having a couple of days in bed. Or, or for little ones, the kind of thing that's dealt with by that strawberry-flavored nectar that is Calpol. Because a fever for us isn't that big a deal. But you see, in Mark's day, a fever was a symptom of the kind of illness that could kill you. It's really serious. And so the scene that greets Jesus and the four fishermen as they arrive at Simon's house is actually a pretty desperate one. 
And yet just notice, without anything by way of fanfare, verse 31, Jesus simply takes her hand, lifts her up, and the fever leaves. It's addressed succinctly in Mark's account, but it is remarkable. And the point being made, I think, is that Jesus has authority even over sickness. And the reason I think that that is Mark's point is what he tells us in verses 32 to 34. When you first read these verses, they look like a kind of summary, like a paragraph at the end of everything he's just told us. But actually, they're far more than that. They widen and widen and widen the scope of Jesus' authority. Just notice that as I read verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. See, this authority over evil and over sickness wasn't confined to one-offs. Jesus isn't a cheap magician. No, he has real and sustained authority. Now, what are we to do with all of that? Well, in the first instance, it's worth saying, I think, what we aren't to do with it. We aren't to think that these miracles describe what things are meant to be like all the time for Christians now. You might have heard that kind of thing being taught before, that Jesus has authority over evil and over sickness, so we just need to claim that for ourselves today, to believe in him more, to make that real for us now. But you see, that isn't Mark's point. If anything, we're to see them as, as, as previews, little tasters, of what God's kingdom will be like when it comes in its fullness, when Jesus returns as he's promised to do, a world where there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more evil, where we'll live with and enjoy him forever. So we can't treat it as being normative for us now because he hasn't promised it to us now. But to help us think about what we are meant to do with it, let me ask you to return in your mind to the scene I asked you to imagine a few minutes ago, that you're attending a church service here at Hebron, when someone turns up who's under the influence of an evil spirit. Just imagine that somehow during the course of the service, through shouting and screaming, they're exercised of that spirit. And as you go home after the service, and you sit down over the lunch table, what's your conversation going to be about? I'm doubting it was going to be about the sermon that I just preached during the service. You'd be talking about the amazing exorcism, wouldn't you? Well, just return with me to the scene in the synagogue in verses 21 to 28. I wonder if you notice the kind of conversation that the witnesses have with each other after they see what Jesus has done in the temple. He's exorcised a demon from a man through shouts and screams. And that does get a mention. But what are people most struck by? Verse 27. They were all amazed so that they question among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Despite the extraordinary miracle, people are most struck By the extraordinary authority of his words. So much so that even the exorcism itself isn't treated as an extraordinary display of power in a general sense. But as evidence of the power of his words. He commands even the unclean spirits they say and they obey him. 
See, the point we're being led to is that Jesus' extraordinary authority over people, over evil, and over sickness means that we should listen to him. And in fact, that listening to him is absolutely the most reasonable thing we can do when confronted with this authoritative king. And so that takes us back to the question we began with this morning, doesn't it? What would it take to convince you to follow someone? And in particular, what would it take to convince you to follow Jesus Christ? Perhaps you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And all of this talk so far of dropping everything to follow Jesus sounds a bit extreme or a bit naive. Well, let me firstly say that I do understand why it might sound like that at first clip. But I hope you've been able to see, firstly, what I've been talking about isn't just my idea dreamt up uh, during the course of a week. I'm cutting with the grain of what Mark wants us to see. And Mark doesn't sugarcoat the fact that becoming a Christian may well interfere with how you live your life. But even though that's true, well, it's also clear that following Jesus is not naive. It's just the opposite. Jesus shows himself to be God's authoritative king. One who has legitimate power over people, over evil and over sickness. And whose power over people and evil and sickness proves his authority over you and me. And his word, his authoritative word to each one of us, to you today, is come follow me. That's what he says. Now, don't just take my word for that. Take the word of the people who were there. You're going to hear me repeating this often through this series, but it does bear repeating because Mark's account bears scrutiny. Carry on reading Mark's account of Jesus' life and listen closely to what he says. Because if Jesus is who Mark says he is, who he himself claims to be, well, then responding to his call to follow him isn't naive at all. It's the only reasonable course of action. Will you follow him? But all of that does leave a big question outstanding. And it is a big question, actually. What will that actually look like? What will it look like to follow this authoritative King Jesus? Jesus says, doesn't he, that he's going to make them fishers of men. But what does that actually mean? What does it look like? Well, we're going to see that being laid out piece by piece by piece as we work through Mark's account over the coming weeks. But we are given the first of those big pieces, even within this opening chapter. And we're going to look at that under our final heading this morning. Jesus made preaching his priority, so follow him. Look on with me to verse 35, if you will. In verse 35, we find ourselves the morning after the night before. Capernaum Community Hospital has emptied. There's, there's no queue at the pharmacy this morning because the people who were sick have been healed. And Jesus' stock is a real high point. He's the man of the moment in Capernaum and he's turned the place on its head the night before. And yet very early that morning, verse 35, Jesus leaves Simon's house and goes to a desolate place to pray. Simon and the other disciples go looking for Jesus, and when they find him, they effectively give him a telling off. Verse 37, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, your fame's spreading. People are clamoring to see you. Why aren't you giving the people what they want? He explains, verse 38, and he said to them, 
Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. People have been coming to Jesus desperate for physical help, physical healing. And Jesus has addressed that need in just spectacular ways. And yet here he says his priority is preaching. Isn't that a surprise? It was to me, I think, especially in the middle of such an action-packed chapter. And actually it's a surprise given what comes next. Because there's a bit of a wrinkle, isn't there? Jesus commits himself to preaching over healing. And what does he do next? He heals someone. Verse 41, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And it looks as though this kind of flatly contradicts what Jesus has just committed himself to doing. And so quite a few commentators find themselves kind of tied in knots about how to make sense of it. Some argue that Jesus just can't help himself. He is moved with pity, says Mark. And so there's an argument to be made that Jesus' heart rules his head. And it's clear that Jesus does feel compassion for this man in his illness. But the physical illness doesn't tell the full story. Because Jesus doesn't heal the man from just any disease, but from leprosy. And leprosy was a disease that left you as an outcast. Not just socially, but spiritually. You were deemed unclean. We see that even in what the man asks of Jesus. He asks to be made clean, not to be healed, to be made clean. You were excluded from entering the temple, effectively excluded from God's presence. And so just notice what Jesus tells the man to do after he's been healed. Verse 44, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. After Jesus has healed him, he doesn't say, go and see your friends and family, rejoice with them, show them what's happened. Jesus' first thought is that this physical healing, well, it's actually dealt with a spiritual problem. And that this leper is now clean. It's free to go back to the temple to be with God again. Can you see, healing this man with leprosy isn't just about his physical plight, but about a real and serious spiritual one. And I do think that makes sense of why Jesus makes preaching his priority because by preaching he was looking to address not only people's physical problems there and then but their even deeper spiritual one the problem of people's spiritual uncleanness their separation from god as a result of their rebellion against him we saw him doing that last week didn't we verse 14 jesus came into galilee proclaiming or preaching the good news of god saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Preaching the news, the good news, that people could be right with God if they turned to him and trust in him was Jesus' priority. And so as he calls us to follow him, well, he calls us to make that a priority too. To become fishers of men, 
by proclaiming that same good news. What might that look like? Well, think about it corporately as a church family. There are myriad, myriad good things we can and are be involved in as a church family. Ministries that bless the community this building is in, that meet practical, physical needs of the people in this city. And we have a privilege and a responsibility to do that as God's people. And yet at the same time, we have a God-given priority to meet people's spiritual need. And it is literally God-given, that's the point of Mark 1, that we should hold out the good news Tell people that God's authoritative king has come and he's come to save. And that the response he calls for is to trust in him and in him alone. So we can make this a priority as a church family. And we can make it a personal priority too. As this king, the authoritative king Jesus, calls each of us to be fishers of men, to tell people about the Lord Jesus, will we follow him? I met with one of you this week and you told me that you're reading through Mark's account of the life of Jesus with a friend who doesn't know Jesus yet. And can I just say that made my heart sing. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Perhaps that's something that the rest of us might consider doing too. Or perhaps for some of us, just taking a step forward in following Jesus would be to tell a colleague, listen, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. And I would love to tell you about him sometime. Can we maybe meet and have a coffee and just speak about that a little bit? Jesus is God's authoritative king. He's come to rescue people, calling them to turn and believe in him. And that was his priority. And so as he calls us to follow him, Christian, let's make it ours too. Let's ask for his help to do that now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and praise you. We praise you for your extraordinary kindness in sending Jesus, your universal, authoritative king, And we praise you, Lord Jesus, as one who has authority, real authority. Help us this morning, please, to listen to you. And so to follow you, to make your priority our priority, to hold out the good news of Jesus to a world which so needs to hear it. And we ask today that someone who's never before acknowledged your authority over them, over their own life, would please do so. Would bow the knee before you, King Jesus, and receive your extraordinary mercy. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.